Hey now, and welcome to Where Wine Takes You, a wine podcast where we get conversational with the people playing major roles in making wine and wine country so special in Paso Robles. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Now, we got a fun show today. We got a full show today. We're going to hit the crush pad at one of my favorite wineries in Paso and find time to talk to a very busy winemaker and see how harvest is going for her. We're smack dab in the middle of it right now. So I'm excited to see winemaker Jordan Fiorentini from Epic Estate Wines and share that conversation with you in a little bit. Also, I have another brand new Travel Paso Spotlight where we're going to share with you the newest and nicest RV resort I've ever seen, that's for sure. We'll talk about Cavo Robles after our conversation today. So we've talked a lot about what makes Paso so special. In addition to all the tangible stuff that we list often, one thing about Paso that's so remarkable is it's distinct. There's nothing like it. It's so far beyond just another great area for grape growing and winemaking. Paso's distinctions among other wine growing regions are really fascinating. I mean, equally as fascinating is to notice the distinction Paso holds among its other world-class wine region neighbors. I mean, Paso is, is very distinct to say Southern San Luis Obispo County or like the Edna Valley. Shoot, even Northern Slow County, like Coastal Slow County, like Cayucas, Cambria, San Simeon. And of course, Santa Barbara County is a beast all its own. Tons of remarkable areas there. Santa Rita Hills, uh, Ballard Canyon, Happy Canyon, Los Olivos, and a lot more. And rather than talk to an expert who's all Paso all day to talk about Paso, which we do often, I thought it would be fun to kind of flip the script, talk to a winemaker who understands Paso, yes, but one who normally is maybe entrenched in another area and get like the inside out or inverted take on Paso's distinction. Wes Hagen's love and passion and understanding for wine is really something else. It's unmatched, basically, or at least there is no one quite like Wes Hagen. I've always enjoyed having him on the air. I've always learned a lot. He has made the wine for Jay Wilkes Winery for years, a brand owned by the Miller family of wines that uses both Paso and Santa Barbara County fruit. Jay Wilkes has a really cool story behind it, and Wes will share it. And one of the ways you know you have a nice wine in front of you at table is the conversation can hit right in so many different places. You sometimes forget the wine entirely. This will be one of those fun and dare I say enlightening conversations. We come into the chat chatting about harvest. I've been hearing from some that it might be a light year as far as yields go. Wes shares what he's seeing. Give me that mm, sound, we'll get by, we pass on round till the job is up. And out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Yeah, yields, yields Yo, are yields. at at or just below averages, which is probably good for the consumer and not so great for the farmer and the winemaker. You know, uh, well, for the winemaker, if you're buying the fruit by the ton, you're getting a really good deal. If you're buying it by the acre, you're losing a little bit of production. But the big news down here in you know Santa Barbara County is cool weather, like one of the coolest summers and the coolest like early falls that I can remember. Now you're so interesting to talk to because you know Central Coast winemaking and history so well and when i say central coast i mean uh, of course we're drinking a paso wine from jay wilkes we'll talk about uh your vineyards there in the uh, highlands district of paso but uh, also you have a big history a rich history in santa barbara wine country too so you really have gotten to see this area of central coast wine just boom in a yes. lot of different ways well i've been here since 1996 uh 1995 but i started working in the uh, santa barbara wine industry in 19 with Brian Babcock. So back then there was nine vineyards in the Santa Rita Hills, you know, and uh, now, you know, I'm being interviewed and people are calling me sort of, I'm not a pioneer, but I'm not one of the young kids. I'm sort of uh, the sort of, uh, I, I don't know, the, the glue that kind of holds together like between the young kids and the pioneers to tell the stories, to make sure. So I find myself in a rare position yeah. to be a storyteller, to say, 
if you haven't met the pioneers, this is what they can teach you. And we're talking from, like the Bob Lindquist, the yeah, Sanfords. Jim Clendenin, rest, Jim is, rest in peace. You know, yeah, of um, course. You know, Ken Brown, right. uh, Adam Tolmack, um, Carrie Eberly, for God's sake. You know, I mean, all the guys, you know, both Paso, all the way down. There's 41. I also write uh, all the uh, articles about the Central Coast for the Psalm Journal and Tasting Panel. And now I know that there's actually 41 AVAs between San Francisco and uh, Santa Barbara. That's wild. So, wow. Yeah, it's it's grown. It has grown. Yeah. Absolutely. So what we're going to talk about, you know, today is the Paso's distinction. Uh, I always enjoy a conversation with you, especially over a glass of wine. And I feel sometimes like the mic just goes away and everything. And just, I mean, you're just really one of these super interesting dudes to talk to. Well, thank you. And uh, I can say that um, because we've got a beautiful 72 degree windy day here uh, on the Central Coast, that if uh, you can hear a little wind in my mic, that's the same wind that is basically the Pacific Ocean fighting the desert. And that is what makes the wines here so special is the proximity to the Pacific Ocean ocean dictates what type of wine we grow. If it's close to the Pacific Ocean, there's no geographical barriers, mountains between the ocean and the vineyard. Well, hello, Pinot Noir. If there are mountains, you know, it might be Syrah. And if it's even more inland and arid and hot, that's where we start seeing, you know, grapes like uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, uh, and even crazy grapes like Lagrine and Tempranillo. You know, and there's, in Paso, at least there's this uh, this Templeton Gap, and we've talked about this a little bit. Talk about how in some of the areas, and I mean, you, uh, we're going to talk about AVAs, these American viticultural areas, and how you had a hand in writing many of them from Santa Rita Hills, Ballard Canyon, Happy Canyon. I think you just did one like a year or so ago. Alisos Canyon. Yeah, right? So, um, we have these 11 sub-AVAs of the Paso AVA. The Templeton Gap is not only a name of one of them, but also a dynamic that we're literally hearing on our microphones right now. And it is very much a role player, a leading role player in how these wines turn out here. There's no doubt in my mind. So, again, it's not only how close you are to the Pacific Ocean, but how much the ocean can influence. Where is the ingress? Where is the exit of those cold, you know, the the ocean air? Uh, Elevation is going to obviously determine how cold it gets at night. And that's, you know, when we talk about the Paso Robles Highlands District, which is the AVA that I know the most about, that's really what defines the Paso Robles Highlands District is those hot, arid days and those very cold nights where you're getting a diurnal shift of 50 degrees. So if it's 100 degrees during the day, it goes down to 50 at night. And there are wineries and places there that don't you know that don't hardly need air conditioning because they're bringing in the cold air at night and then basically that cold air is keeping the building from getting too warm and as soon as the temperature goes back down again rinse and repeat but what does it do to the grapes it has even a more uh, you know very strong impact on the grapes cold nights mean the grapes basically protect uh, their acid structure by shutting down as it gets cold. If it gets down to like 55, si- under like 60 degrees, the vines stop respiring acidity, so you're not losing acid at night and during the day. So it, it keeps the acid in the grapes with those cold nights, so you get the heat basically causing the, the sugars to go up and the cold nights maintaining the acidity, then you get that magic. That And, and especially in Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah, the grapes that, uh, for a red grape that already do have decent amounts of acidity for Syrah and spectacular acidity in Cabernet Sauvignon. So it even takes their nature of being ripe and structured to even a higher extent. What does it take to write one of these AVAs? I mean, this sounds like an incredible amount of work. And is it research? Is it is it interviewing people that are smarter than you about different pieces of the earth? I mean, how scientific is it? How political is it? I mean, you've done this a number of times. I've done it four times. The first time I did it was the Santa Rita Hills, and I volunteered. It was literally a bunch of people stepping back, and, look and at that I region stepped now. forward. Look at that region now. That is going to be a big feather in my cap when I I retire when I go around on the lecture circuit about you know wine and AVAs. If if I ever uh, can, you already can do see so. it, don't well, you? I do. You I already do. see. I it. want to. It's like first class accommodations, nice right. hotel. I'll tell you the story. I'm going to tell you my secret of riding AVAs because the first one I did, I volunteered, and the last one I did, I made almost you know close to six figures uh, for a two and a half year project. So I'll tell um, and you Cal Poly students out there and anyone else in the wine industry who's looking for a way to make more money. 
money, uh, writing AVAs is a great way of doing it. It is a two-year process for me of research and writing. And the way I did it to begin with is I looked through the process and I asked myself this fundamental question, what AVA went through the system the fastest? It's like asking yourself in college, who is my professor's favorite student and what type of essays do they write? You want to think about audience when you write. So I looked at the audience, which was a bunch of bureaucrats. They don't want too much information. They don't want flowery stuff. They don't want stories. They want the protocol. They want A, B, C, and D. You feed them A, B, C, and D. And it turned out, I believe Rutherford in Napa was the quickest AVA to go through the process. So I downloaded the, the uh, Rutherford AVA and I restructured the Santa Rita Hills AVA sentence by sentence to give them exactly the same protocol. Was it plagiarized? Yes. Was it plagiarized? <laughs> no. I didn't use any of their data. I didn't use any of their language. I used, I structured my sentences. I used to teach high school English. You know, uh, I retired from a very lucrative career in public education, which is a nice way of saying the kids drove me to drink and I went pro. <laughs> so, no, I, and so I looked and asked myself if I was going to diagram the sentence, what would it do? So I would say, okay, simple sentence. This is what the sentence says. What, how would I rephrase that for the Santa Rita Hills? So that's what I did with the Santa Rita Hills. It went through the process in about uh, three years, and then we redid part of the petition to uh, change Santa Rita Hills to STA Rita Hills, which is a story for another day. But then my next AVA took me a long time and a lot of research, a lot of headaches, took forever. Third AVA, I got it. I hired a GPS GIS expert out of USC who had a, a master's degree in GIS studies. I paid him $10,000 and I said, get me data, visual map data, overlays, like, like transparency sure. over a map. I want a transparency for rainfall. I want a transparency for wind speed. I want a transparency for soil type. I want a transparency for where the vineyards are. I want a transparency of the history of the planting of those vineyards, varietals, everything, right? And pay him 10 grand, man. He started just giving me all this information and he had resources through his GIS and GPS geek friends that allowed him to, so I don't even have an idea where I want the boundaries before I ask him to do this. So then all the data comes in on these overlays and I start looking at the overlays and they start speaking to me. Where does the rain fall? Where does the rain go? Where are the watersheds? Where are the cool spots? Where are the hot spots? Where does the soil change? Where are the vineyards? And then I start asking myself, what does the data lead me to believe the boundary should be? And the way I used to do it is I used to drive out and take soil samples in my car, do those soil samples and say, okay, where does the soil start and change? Look at temperature, look at you know uh, d different weather stations. But now I'm using data that is all guaranteed to be accurate and visual and as someone who's I'm not am I a soil scientist kind of if I'm, I'm a viticulturist and I know enough about soil to get myself in trouble I like to say in a hundred years people are going to look back at this guy Wes Hagen who wrote four of the seven AVAs that are here now in Santa Barbara County and they're going to ask themselves how did he do and I always say I, I want to look competent at worst and prescient at best <laughs> so I, I hope the work I've done and the care I've taken um, really lead us to believe, and of course, my first AVA, Santa Rita Hills, where I didn't use that specific data was actually changed a little bit by a later uh, petition. So I'm hoping my later study and more uh, very careful scientific study of these areas lead to boundaries that are going to have much longer uh, efficacy and, uh, and longevity. Well, you take a look at these you know, sub AVAs in Paso, and that's kind of, I, mean, I don't even know if we've seen that anywhere else, right? I mean, that's its own interesting aspect because Paso is so, it's one of the larger AVAs, right? And yeah. also uh, very, a lot, of, a lot of things going on there. Yeah. And I don't, I, I, I want to say this with great respect for Paso Robles, but I'm going to talk a little smack right now about the way they went around. That should go well over the podcast. It, yeah. should, re it should really. I, <laughs> Paso, I love you. I really do. You know, it's a beautiful place to go. It's a great place to, and, and hospitality wise, I have to say uh, that they're kicking our ass, uh, you know, in Paso over Santa Barbara. Hopefully at some point, Santa Barbara will invest in uh, our association the same way that Paso has. And I have to give Paso's, uh, you know, wine association a lot 
of credit. Paso Wine does amazing stuff that Santa Barbara needs to look at and ask ourselves. Now, that being said, how the hell do you get your head wrapped around 11 AVAs? I mean, I'm a psalm. I'm a wine geek. I cannot name more than six or seven. And I live this stuff. I write about this stuff. This is my beat for my journalistic idea. If I look at a map, I get it. But, but you I mean, know, like Geneseo is so different than, say, you know, Adelaida. No. That's not the right. That's not the right analogy. The analogy would be what happened if we would have um, applied for Santa Rita Hills, Ballard Canyon, Happy Canyon, Alisos Canyon, Los Olivos District simultaneously. That would be that would be it, and that would be a good analogy because oh, I see. because it's a 30 mile corridor between Lompoc and Lake Kachuma, and the temperature is like 30 degrees. It's a degree every uh, mile you drive east on a hot summer day. Now you could say the Paso AVA was even more, you know, uh, climatically distinct in different areas. Sure. It, it needed to be broken up. Yeah. But I like, I like, you know, AVA sort of like Boston albums, one every seven years. <laughs> because then... That's an interesting way to look at because it, Because then everyone understands it. Like, the Psalms I just got think then the you stre- Hills. Then you stretch the amount of decades it's going to take to grasp understanding of it all. Like, at least but if you have 11, you go... All these things are going to speak to people. The question is, um, if you're out there selling wine and you're using an AVA on on your label, if that AVA is confusing and confounding to the buyer, you're not doing yourself any any good. Sure. It's probably to, better to conjunctively label as pass a Robles, well, they, which Genesee. they do, of course, and, and that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does give it does give a a, a a knob to hang your hat on to say this is us, this is our this is our destiny, this is what we're doing. So I would have liked to see every two or three years a new one pop up. But you're right, that would have taken 25 years. Right. So it's I don't like, have that much time. Is it is it is it build it. <laughs> they will come or they will come and then you build it right much love to paso uh in the end in 100 years you know people will talk about this and say oh gary and west you know just a bunch of pearl clutchers yes i'm clutching my pearls Uh, one of the other reasons i think i mentioned this is it cost me a couple um a couple of payments on my ava petition because when i was writing i think it was the happy canyon ava petition i submitted it like by mistake because i didn't know about what was happening in paso i submitted like a day after they submitted all 11 AVAs on the same day and the TTB shut down the sub AVA process. They said 11, we don't know what's going on guys. No more sub AVAs. So my no way. my That's petition so got in, but it was put on the docket behind all 11. Oh man. So That's why you're a little bitter about that. <laughs> that was like, you know, that was like half a half a cheap Porsche. Right. That's so interesting. Love well, you love you love you Paso. Oh man, uh we too and I love the what you said about the Paso Rolls Wine Country Alliance. I think you're so right. And I've had winemakers from, you know, different areas, you know, speak to that. And then just you see the the way the folks um, in Paso regard, you know, what the Wine Alliance has done for them. So it's it's pretty special. Speaking of special, what is so special about wine? Wine is liquid humanism. Wine is liquid history. Wine is a very important part of Western civilization. I don't think you can separate wine from Western civilization, whether it's, we'll talk a little bit about the history of wine later, but whether we're talking about the classical Athenian symposia of the, you know, the fourth century BCE in Athens, uh, gentlemen getting together, drinking wine for four hours and having serious discussions and inventing democracy, basically, in their discussions while drinking wine carefully, whether it's the California history, whether it's the Spanish bringing, you know, grapes and wine uh, to make, you know, to start with uh, sacramental wine and then sort of wine becoming more and more secular. Um, It's part of our European history. It's part of African history. A lot of people don't know that there was a Northern African wine industry far before there was ever wine north of the Alps or a Western wine industry. So it's the story of mankind. It's, I mean, you take beer gave us civilization and then wine took us to finishing school. Beer gave us agriculture. Beer gave us permanent civilizations. And that's one reason I love beer so much too. But then when wine first started coming up for about, oh, probably close to 9,000 years in the history of, of Europe from Transcaucasia between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea all the way till it had uh, spread um, into 14, about the 13th century, the strongest booze you could make on the planet Earth was grape wine because wine grapes produce more fermentable sugar than any other fruit on the planet Earth. So if you ferment fully uh, you know, fully ripe wine grapes, you can produce the strongest alcohol on the planet without without distilling. So you can imagine, A, it's the strongest booze on the planet for most of our time here. B, it makes itself because grapes grown anywhere in the world have yeast on their skins. So all you have to do is 
punch a grape and it starts to become wine naturally uh, by the evolution of the grape and, and the bloom and the waxy substance that attracts the yeast because it's a genetic advantage to the grape to ferment, which we'll discuss a little bit later too. And then the other thing, which is really freaky, it looks like blood. And so it was very common for ancient societies to drink the blood of their enemies to celebrate a, 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 a winning a war. So you would drink the blood or take a bite of the heart of your enemy to give, its, to give yourself its strength. Well, it's actually really bad for human beings to drink blood and eat raw hearts, but um, <laughs> we, have, we have archaeological clear evidence that wine was being used as a proxy for blood in war ritual something like 3,000 years in advance of Christianity. There are religions that where wine is very much centered around either you know ceremonial aspects or rites. Of course. And I mean, there's nothing more sacred than communion yeah. in Christianity, Catholicism, right? So I mean, Bacchus and Dionysus, I mean, you look at those, uh, you know, from there on. Obviously, wine is, uh, when you look at what a ritual is, a ritual is making um, spirituality concrete. I am dancing physically to be a Shinto. I am sitting and uh, going into Zazen meditation as a small boat Buddhist. I am drinking wine as a Catholic to elevate my consciousness literally from the mundane to the heavenly. Because, I mean, if you look, what is heaven but being drunk all day and never coming down? <laughs> That's what it is in the Quran. A lot of people don't like to talk about the, the, you know, in the Quran, the first thing when you get into paradise, you get a, a vase and there's an ever-flowing wine fount. You cannot drink as a Muslim when you're on this earth, but once you're in paradise, you're drinking all day, every day, because you've proven yourself to be worthy of such. What would you want? What varietal would you want in that <laughs> when you get there? Desert Island slash Heaven? Yeah, kind of. Well, heaven, Heaven's wine list would be definitely a, a, a grand award winner in the Wine Spectator. But I would say, I will say my desert, my desert Island wine, if I have refrigeration, is champagne. And if I don't, it's Fernet Branca. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, not really a wine, though, is it's it? It's not. But uh, if I, with no refrigeration, probably Pinot Noir, I guess. Um, I guess if I got constant shiploads of it, I wouldn't have to worry if it, it got heat damaged. We right. don't worry about that stuff. That's the problem about being a winemaker. Someone asks you a, you know, sort of a, a, a question like that, a rhetorical question. I start yeah. getting all serious about it. I know. We got Wes Hagen here. One of the things I've always loved having you on the show on the radio, whether it was Cork Dorks or Liquid Lunch, was, and I've really kind of like taken and taken layers of this conversation that you've offered, and that is coming to table and the, the specialty and the idea of focusing on what it means to come to table and to enjoy wine whether it's just one other person for an extra hour talk about it so first thing i will say is as i start going out and risking a little bit of my health to get back into the market and start doing a few winemaker dinners uh it's uh october uh i've probably gone back out since i got my shots i've probably done four different wine dinners and at the beginning of each wine dinner you know i say welcome back to table and that wine is an investment you know to keep the people we love at table for an extra hour every day and during covid why not two hours because where are we going anywhere <laughs> so we have learned to be at table with the same people in our pod now for a few few years now we're getting back and we can see it you see that magic in someone's eyes when they take their mask off when they finally get their water or their first drink and they're sitting at table again they're they're back where they want to be table is a place where time doesn't exist table is a place that we work to get to table is the magic table is is the campfire in the paleolithic it's we light a candle on the table. Why would we light a candle on the table? It represents when we were hunter-gatherers sitting around a fire eating what the men had killed eating what the women had fermented and gathered, you know, trying to make sure that the children weren't being eaten by dire wolves and all of that stuff, celebrating the fact that we weren't crushed by a mastodon, the, the bitten by a poisonous or a venomous reptile, killed by disease. We were celebrating a life that we were lucky to get to 30 years old less than 7,000 years ago. We have tripled our lifetime. As human beings, there's so much to celebrate. So when I say wine is liquid humanism, what I mean is we work hard during the day to get to a place at night where we no longer have to think about what it took to pay the mortgage, to make our car payment, to deal with, uh, you know, deal with the kids or adult kids or problems. Uh, in a perfect time, table's a place where where worries subside, where wine flows freely, where we talk about what we're passionate about, what we did that day to reconnect in a way that 
Coca-Cola or even bourbon just doesn't seem to do. You know, it's interesting that you say it like that because I remember during COVID and you talk about like your pods and there would there would be, you know, maybe a couple or a, a few couples or a friend or whoever that you felt whatever reason close enough to and safe enough with. Mm-hmm. And when that barrier kind of opened far before, you know, public barriers did and employment barriers did, uh, I remember in this backyard we would have this table that you and I are on right now and we would just um, you know have another couple and it'd be like wow for the first time you know how you know how are you and it would be a bottle of wine or two or three yep. or maybe two couples or I mean and it was it was very very special because it was something that we knew we had missed and we were just getting to taste again the the greatest spice is hunger yeah it I mean right like I always say like the best, one of the best meals I've ever had was at Denny's. And people are like, come on, dude, you've eaten more, you know, you've had more uh, Michelin star, you know, meals and you've had, yeah. you know, women in your life. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but um, either way I, I could, I could make that argument. But I think the issue is, is I was out camping in the high Sierras with my grandfather and we were surviving on, um, you know, just those packets of dehydrated beef stroganoff, which taste freaking delicious after a seven mile hike, you know, up switchbacks, but then leaving driving back down the mountain, stopping at Denny's and just getting like, I don't know, like a burger and fries and just like that first bite of burger. And you're like, it's not all that great. I mean, it's just a, it's a good burger, right? But it was one of the most delicious things I've ever had because I had not had good, delicious, hot, fresh food for two weeks. Yeah. So yeah, the greatest spice is hunger. That's such a good line. I love that. You're full of them. Um, <laughs> what was your kind of like your gateway bottle? Was there a bottle oh, yes. that, that you know this one? Oh yeah. Two of them. Two okay. of them real quick. When I was nine years old, I was doing dishes to make money so I could go play asteroids at, at 7-Eleven in Long Beach, California. And I was given- you from uh, Southern California? Oh yeah. Okay. I, I, my family goes back three generations in Long Beach and four generations in Glendale. Oh wow. My family's so old in Glendale, we're not even Armenian. Much love to the Armenians. <laughs> They're one of the original wine cultures. Yeah, you're no, you're no Armo. No, no, no. I don't have I-A-N. Higginian. I could be Higginian. Um, but uh, the first wine was uh, 1971 uh, Chateau Latour, uh, first growth Bordeaux. And I was nine years old. And I was uh, in the kitchen finishing dishes, making five bucks doing dishes all night for a dinner party that my parents were throwing. And a man came in and it ended up being the guy who would be my stepfather 20 years later irony saying my wife didn't finish her wine and I'm not saying a nine-year-old should be drinking but it would be a shame if the 71 Latour went down the drain I didn't know what a 71 Latour was but when he said it he like did the Sullivan nod and I'm like oh my gosh that must mean something so my brother tasted it and said ew and I tasted it and I go whoa so there was something about you that you literally wine. remember that I, I, re- I do yeah I, I do I remember it taking me someplace I remember it being wow. earthy and funky and weird uh-huh. like nothing I'd ever tasted and I also knew that fancy adults thought this was really cool stuff like this is what adults do and I was allowed yeah. I was it was sort of like you know seeing your hot your hot aunt and uncle having sex by mistake like <laughs> oh my gosh Aunt Mary I had no idea you know just like you know that there's something going oh on you God. probably shouldn't be there it's a little taboo yeah but there's something magical about seeing that before you're supposed to see it and then in uh, in, in 1999 I was in uh, Burgundy France right as Clinton was being impeached and we were at the rotisserie de Chambertin with the owner and we had ordered a bottle on his recommendation of 1972 uh, Louis Trappé Chapelle Chambertin Grand Cru and he brought the bottle out it never had a label because it was delivered it was basically brought next door to the restaurant from where it was made and he pulled it out I remember it was I think it was like 90 euros and Today, I think the bottle at that quality would be worth $1,000 easily. He opened the bottle, poured himself a very generous pour, which I remember thinking, well, that's why it's 85 euros because he drinks a quarter of the bottle. (laughs) And he smelled it and he tasted it and he said, my American friends, this wine waited for tonight to be perfect. And he didn't seem like to be... French people don't really use a lot of hyperbole. He'd be like, oh, yes, it's fine if it was fine. But he said he used the word perfect, and I never heard a French person describe a wine as perfect. I stuck my nose in it, and uh, tears started coming down my face. I just had never smelled something so complex, earthy and gamey and funky you and teared smoky. Up. I teared up. Yeah. Then I tasted it, and I lost my shit. Yeah. And I remember that was the moment I wanted to be a winemaker, and people were like, oh, you wanted to make 72 Ch- Chapelle Chambertin. I said, no. That wine taught me 
I will never make a 72 Chappelle Chambertan. It's like being uh, a filmmaker and watching Citizen Kane or Chinatown or to me like American Beauty or, or Fight Club or, you know. The jerk. <laughs> the jerk. I was born. Uh, <laughs> she, she sounds like a very nice girl. Yeah. Aww. He hates these cans. He hates these cans. Um, no, like kind of like the perfect film. Yeah. You'll never make it, but you want to go out there and do what you can to try to add to what these folks are doing. So what I learned about Burgundy is Burgundy belongs in Burgundy. And if you ever say you make Burgundian style Pinot Noir in California, you don't even know what Pinot Noir is actually meant to be because there's nothing Burgundian about Pinot Noir except we stole the grape and put it on alien soil. So Burgundy taught me to leave Burgundy in Burgundy, but it taught me the classical ideals of what wine could be in a perfect moment. And I had it with you know, some of the best, like, uh, you know, escargot with like a runny egg on top. I don't like snails and I don't like runny eggs, but it worked, right? It's like, that's what I love about France. It's like stuff you would never put in your mouth. True that. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is an ass of a giant clam. Oh, bring it, baby. <laughs> bring it. Little apoive. Is that, is that because we're in France and we're just enamored with it? Or is it because... Well, it is because they're French and it is because they get it. And I still think French, the French make the best food in the world. But for the money, I think all the places I've been, Italy has the best food for the money. Yeah. Like you can walk into any restaurant in Italy. You can walk into like the Auto Grill, which is the AMPM, and have better risotto than you can have at a one-star Michelin in the United States. No way. Yeah. Speaking of one-star Michelin, uh, both Santa Barbara County and Paso. Bells. Got one. Yes. Bells, which I love. Right. And then Six Test Kitchen. <laughs> In Paso, well, Tin City. It's got a Michelin star can restaurant. Can you imagine like the, the wine buyers there, how they're being inundated now? Yeah. You know, and uh, I've always loved, um, you know, Bells. I think they do a fantastic job. Oh, incredible. I, I have not been to the... To the Six uh, Test? Six Test. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's an unbelievable experience. And that's what, you know, it's almost like when the culinary, you go to Bells, you go to Six Test, kind of like a transformative wine mm. it's a transformative eating experience it's it's next level we got Wes Hagen here who is from uh, Jay Wilkes they have a Cabernet Sauvignon that we're drinking from uh, Paso Robles the Highland District talk about Camp 4 a little bit this is actually uh, French Camp French I'm sorry camp. no 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 worries no worries French Camp is named after I always get those two mixed up named after the Basque intrigue back in the 1800s where a couple Basque farmers uh, their wives were taken and there were some murders and it's a it's an they called it French Camp after the Basques. Uh, French Camp is a 1,400-acre vineyard. There are something like 17 different varietals of grapes being grown up there. You know, everything from Albarino to Zinfandel, so from A to Z. Um, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Lagrine, uh, the, the, Ooh, the Sa Lagrine. Sauvignon Blanc, the Petite Syrah, I think are the standouts. The Chardonnay is amazing, too, but this Cabernet does have 5% Lagrine in it, so you get the Lagrine. Uh, it, it adds a little bit of a, a grip to it. Um, we sell you name a Paso or a Napa winery, chances are it's got French Camp Cabernet in it. I can't, I don't want to ruin a bunch of Napa contracts by saying all the incredibly famous Napa wineries who make their wine better by using a little Paso Robles fruit. Amen. But let's say Paso Robles making Napa better since, what, 1971? Amen. Rocking it, right? Yeah. And so the French Camp Vineyard is so special because it's it's one of the, uh, the Paso Robles Highlands District has the highest average elevation of any AVA in Paso, but it also has the highest diurnal shift, so hot hot days, cold nights. And again, as I described before, that allows us That's to... That's the secret sauce. That is the secret sauce. The, the Maintaining the acidity, maintaining the structure, but also getting it as ripe as you need it. I would say in the new world and in California and specifically in Paso, I would say the magic and the currency of those wines is sunshine. So this wine speaks of sunshine, but it also speaks of balance and a little bit of restraint. I, I will never say that I understand balance the way that like those in pursuit of balance people try to redefine balance as being under 13.5 or whatever alcohol right. BS. It's just a number. I've had 16% alcohol wines that were balanced. I've had 11% wines that were just awful. Sure. Yeah, or, right. I mean, they, they weren't right. Purposefully. What I find is most young winemakers want to make a more elegant, balanced wine to show that their character, you know, they want to make something crafty. And then they learn that those wines aren't selling as, as much as the big, rich, ripe wines. And then they go big and rich and ripe, develop a reputation, and then they bring it back down a little bit. It's also, you know, because young winemakers want to pick because they're worried they hear about you know the rain is coming well 
grizzled veterans like Gary Eberle are saying, yeah, every year it happens. We're going to get a little bit of rain. It's going to knock down the dust. And the next day it's going to be dry. It's going to have no impact on the grapes. And then the stupid kids are going to pick because they hear about rain. And the grizzled veterans know that grapevines are very strong, uh, robust systems that, yeah. don't, that just don't, they don't collapse. It's almost like heat spikes where I remember Always. there was that heat spike in what, 17 or 18 where you saw a lot of people panic pick yep. right after that spike. But a lot of the veterans were like, no, wait this out. Bricks will come down. Water. Yeah. Yeah, put some water on the vines. Let the, let the vines, especially old vines. Everything they can, was fine. They can moderate. Absolutely. Yeah. So That's Interesting. No, no, no. It's, 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 it, it's cool because, you know, it's craft. Oh, I got to ask you this because yeah, I've asked yeah. so many of these winemakers this winemaking, and I think this conversation really started with you and I. Yeah, on on the show is when you would talk about the difference between winemaking being a craft or an art. It is absolutely one hundred percent a craft. Art epistemologically is the creation of a representation of a concrete. So, like the statue that's called the Thinker by Rodin, it's actually supposed to be uh, Dante Alighieri. Is it really Dante in there? No, it's not. It's a representation of Dante. A picture on the wall. It's not really a mountain. It's a picture. A wine bottle, listen carefully, if you heard me knock it against my head, is an actual physical concrete. What is craft? Craft is a physical concrete created by a human being to give another human being comfort. A chair is craft. Beer. They don't call it art art beer making they call it craft beer making because it's a craft yeah just because we use grapes doesn't mean it's any different it's also just because you use so much subjectivity right i mean there's so many different stylings and and people like i mean john munch and the music he plays i'm sure there was music you're a very musically oriented guy I'm sure there was music you would play on the cellar um there's spirituality involved for some there's so many things that you think artistry is playing a role but i see your point that truly it's not. Truly, it's yeah. craft. I can feel artistic after drinking a bottle of wine. I can feel the muse enter me, and I want to create something artistic. But um, I agree with Brian Babcock. The first article I ever wrote as a wine writer was called Wine Art or Craft. And Brian Babcock and, um, Brian Babcock and Jim Clendenin both agreed it was a craft. Rick Longoria one of my favorite winemakers said there is artistry in winemaking it actually says so on his label so he kind of had to go that way yeah. but he said one out of a hundred winemakers posit so much of themselves that is a representation of the concrete of the vintage the vintage is the concrete my wine is the artistic representation of that concrete and I think that's fair what do you think of that I think what he was saying is a winemaker that can take a moderately decent vintage and make an incredibly good wine or even a bad vintage into a drinkable wine that's art because they've posited more of themselves on the natural ingredient of grapes that they have gone oh they have elevated over the potential quality that those grapes could give and they did better than that and that is a representation that is not craft that is art but if i took your favorite winemaker and a winemaker i liked and i said let's give them two of the same bins uh, two of the same everything even some of the things like the, the same oak, whatever, right? And say, let's come out in the end. And I imagine those wines would probably be a little different. They would, but that is endemic to the process of winemaking. I made, I had wines in my cellar, two barrels from the same cooper, same forest, same batch, same guy who made the barrel, same fruit, same pick date, same vineyard, same yeast, same same fermentation lot, two barrels next to each other. Those two barrels were distinct. Now you blend them together and they're gestalt. That's the great thing about winemaking. You start throwing barrels together, the wine gets better and better and better. And you throw in a shitty, like sometimes we'll take a bad barrel and we'll throw it in with all the good barrels and we'll try it with the bad barrel and with the good barrels. Almost every time the wine is better with the bad barrel blended in because it gives it it gives it this it's little interesting. thing. You know, maybe it's volatile acidity, and all of a sudden you put one part volatile acidity to ten parts low volatile acidity, and it elevates the aromatics. Or maybe this barrel is just funky, but two percent funk is better than you know Parliament. You know, you know Parliament. And George Clinton <laughs> on the other side, and Bootsy Collins going, "What up?" <laughs> right? Just like you know, you can drop that l little bass line at the beginning of a jazz song and give it two percent funk, and it might be a better jazz song. That's such a good point. You're right again, Wes Hagen. No, I'm never right. I'm just opinionated. <laughs> uh, Wes Hagen is here. He is uh, from Jay Wilkes. They have this beautiful cabernet. Now, uh, Jay Wilkes, I got to say about the brand. Yep. Um, Jay Wilkes and the Miller family, fantastic people. You have to give a big hug uh, to Nicholas. 
list because they sent me, as they do every year, a beautiful blessing of avocados. Oh, lovely. So it's really, really nice. They send that every year. I, I, I have to check the box that you're still worthy, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I think those were Bien Nacido avocados. They were huge. They They're were no, amazing. A Bien Nacido avocado? I know. I Holy believe crap. Yeah, like yeah, the, the terroir. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and speaking of that famed vineyard, maybe the most designated vineyard on earth, uh, Jay Wilkes, so give me the 90-second version of the Jay Wilkes story because what it does is it takes some of these really famous and beautiful vineyards and it uses fruit from a lot of the resources of the millers to put into a package that uh, Jeff Wilkes originally had that uh, speaks so highly of whatever vineyards that they're coming from in the millers. 30 seconds has to go to Jeff Wilkes. Jeff Wilkes was a, an incredible winemaker, um, a companion of mine. I worked with him for a couple years at CCWS, talked to him a long time about uh, Pinot Blanc. Um, I would consider himself damn close to a friend, although we never just hung out, out of, outside of work. Uh, he passed away in 2010. Uh, the Miller family purchased the brand uh, from his estate and relaunched it in 2012 uh, with uh, Vidal Perez as the winemaker. And then 2015, they hired me to take over the winemaking duties. I made the wine from 2015 to 2019, five vintages. And now Jonathan Nagy from, uh, you know, uh, f from working with Ken Brown at, at Byron for yeah. seven years and then 20 years running the Byron program for the Jackson family himself oh well with his crew so we landed an incredible winemaker and one that cares as much about pinot blanc and the grapes we make as jeff wilkes and i did and then when i was told that i was going to transition to california market manager and brand ambassador i guess that was sort of an idea that the idea that i'm i'm probably a good winemaker but i'm better at selling and talking about wine that uh being in the cellar is not as important as being in the market. You are so good about I, talking about wine. I took it on the chin. Educating I, about I, wine. I said, you know what? You know, this is not a great time to be looking for a job. This is not a great... And the Millers have been so good to me. Did it hurt a little bit? Was it a little, little bit? bit yeah. You know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't driving forklifts and hooking up hoses. Don't get me wrong. I mean, my crew was probably more important to the quality of the Jay Wilkes wines than I ever was. Was it just to see it on a business card and see that not be there? Was it almost like something like that? I mean, you, I mean you're, you're a freaking genius. I mean, like... Well, it's, but we're all human, so I get I it. I I agree with the Miller family that um, my winemaking skills are much better used in a 2,000 case production, small little winery where I am absolutely 100% doing all the work with a couple interns and my wife. That was the winemaking I did. What is so special about Paso to you? Sunshine, the people, the hospitality, the restaurants. The hospitality infrastructure, the people at Paso Wine um, are all incredibly special. And I think just like Sandy Inez, and I always qualify stuff by talking about what I really, really, really know, which is Santa Barbara County, there's a similarity that the wines have amazing um, breadth and uh, difference because of the cool sides and the hot sides and the elevation and where the hills are and where the, the, the fog comes in. So it's a combination of incredibly stable quality across the board. You know, you do this thing where you can do the history of wine within five minutes. And it's I don't know if I've had enough to drink. <laughs> it's really special. We have about that time here. I would love for you to, and I, I could put the timer on. I don't have to. I would love for you to give this audience. Oh, I've heard it all twice before, and it's so good. Okay. And it's really educational because if you think about it, it's like, just listen. And then, you know, look at the minute marker right now and then share this with someone because... And if I go if I go over five minutes and 30 seconds, which means I can't talk too much about the Athenians and the Romans, um, that means... Uh, Should you I can, give you six minutes? No, five and a half. Five if and I half, go okay. over five and a half, uh, you can email me at whagen at millerfamilywinecompany.com and I will, comp you, uh, I will comp you a tasting at our uh, tasting room in downtown Santa Barbara. Okay. So that, right. that'll keep me at 5.30. And you can, you can taste this wine from Paso down there? Do you, do you ever taste that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the great. Paso wines, Santa Barbara wines, absolutely. I love it. All right, ready to go? I am ready to go. All right, The History of Wine by Wes Hagen on the Where Wine Takes You podcast. 200 million years ago, there's one continent, Pangaea, and one grapevine, Vitus ampelopsis. Uh, as the continents crack and separate and form what we recognize today as a globe, uh, we break into two major subspecies of grapes, uh, basically the American subspecies uh, and the Eurasian subspecies. The Eurasian subspecies is what we make wine out of. It's the grape that has vitus vinifera. It has the highest fermentable sugar. American grapes make terrible, no good uh, booze by themselves without being hybridized, so we don't even have to talk about the American grapevine. The Eurasian grapevine in Western Europe 
lives and dies in Europe, lives and dies, dies and lives between each ice age. And then finally, the last ice age ends about 12,000 years ago. And at that point, the grapevine only survives really between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea because those two major bodies of water kept that area from fully freezing and killing all the grapevines. So as humans move back into this area called Transcaucasia about 12 to 10,000 years ago, they start seeing nut trees and fruit trees. And sometimes these nut and fruit trees have these crazy vines growing up them with these beautiful jeweled clusters of fruit. Well, sometimes the jeweled clusters weren't so big. So, but one thing they noticed is they noticed one vine specifically, and that was a vine that had gone through a massive genetic mutation. And what had happened is the vine had become hermaphroditic. It went from being male and female to being both. So every cluster had both male and female parts. So the grapes no longer had to get dressed up. They didn't have to go clubbing. They could stay at home and pollinate themselves with amazing rapidity and efficiency. At that point, there was a domestication event. We domesticated that one vine that showed its ability to produce 10 times more fruit than the female vine specifically. So the perfected hermaphroditic vine was, was basically taken. And here's the mind-blowing thing. That one domestication event about 10,000 years ago we can trace every single grapevine genetically on the planet that makes delicious wine back to that one single grapevine, that one single domestication event somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, the highlands of Anatolian Turkey and Iran. So that is where wine started. And then it was the, the hermaphroditic vine, the special vine, the magic vine was traded from village to village, uh, from country to country. It started moving. It moved down uh, basically into Asia Minor, Asia Minor, it went across, you know, the Aegean and some of the Mediterranean to be in Crete. Crete made some delicious wine, sort of went into Greece. Greece started making wine. They had the symposia where they got together and drank and invented democracy and they invented all these wonderful things that started Western civilization. And then anytime that the Greeks had something cool, who got jealous is the Romans. The Romans grabbed the grapevine and they started bringing it everywhere that they could. Um, the, the Canaanites and the uh, Phoenicians also brought grapevines down into uh, ancient Egypt and the Egyptians by 4000 BCE were growing grapes and making wine for the pharaohs and we know from digging up like King Tut's tomb there were 27 jars of vineyard designated wine with the Canaanite uh, winemaker listed so the Canaanites were the winemakers but there was a North African wine industry before grapevines had ever really gone north of the Alps they went north of the Alps during uh, during the time of uh, Julius Caesar Caesar allowed and legally allowed grapevines to be grown north of the Alps for trade purposes. Germany, Austria started growing grapes and then it moved across, kind of went sideways also around North Africa uh, into uh, Spain, especially with the Carthaginians. And then the Spanish and the... Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, Portuguese, modern Portuguese and Spanish, the Iberian Peninsula was making a lot of wine and actually competing a little bit with Rome. Uh, and as Rome took up all of, all of Europe, Rome planted vineyards anywhere vineyards could be planted. And then as the Roman Empire fell apart, the local populations started allowing these vineyards to mutate into new varieties that tasted better with the conservative nature of their own cuisine. And then the grapes were brought to the new world to make communion wine and then slowly secularized and made into wine that was delicious and wonderful and that's where we are today that was probably about four minutes and 38 seconds damn <laughs> damn that is so good well, that was that was a very i didn't get to talk about democritus i didn't get to talk about athens i didn't really get to talk about rome the uh, athenian symposia and the uh, roman convivium the difference is the symposium you couldn't be drunk and the convivium they had the vomitorium so uh, you could see that the Greeks were a little bit more interested in, in maintaining a certain level of sobriety the Romans were a little more into letting everything hang loose and going crazy ah, wow yeah unbelievable West Hagen the history of wine I do love hearing and it's cool because that was like maybe the third or fourth time and every time you learn something a little different you hear it a little bit different with a little bit different twist on the lens you know and I haven't I haven't I mean we didn't really even talk about the and maybe in the, uh, another podcast we'll do I can do in three minutes how wine is responsible for all medicine all cosmology 
and basically all of science. In three minutes? I got it. We got three minutes? Come on. Really easy. It's like 15th century, basically the invention of the movable printing press. Do you know what the first printing press was made out of? What? It was made out of a wine press. It was um, Gutenberg's brother was a German winemaker, and he was watching him unload the press, and he saw the indentions, right? And he thought, if I did this right, I could actually put Bible pages and stamp them using a wine press. So he used his skills of being a mirror maker and a, and a, and a metal worker, and he took an old screw press and turned it into the first movable printing press. And then that enabled Europe to afford books. The books, and so you think you know where I'm going with this, books lead to literacy, literacy leads to everything. No, I'm going deeper than that. I'm going with, su- with glasses, spectacles. Suddenly everyone in Europe needed spectacles because they could read and they didn't know how bad their eyes were, right? So they started buying lenses. And so lens technology started going through a massive, massive uh, improvement of quality. And there was one village in Europe that produced some of the best glass in the world. And that was Middleburg in, uh, in, in Zealand in, in Holland. And they actually created the prototype. This is so mind-blowing. One little village in Holland produced the prototype for the microscope and the telescope within one decade of each other. So the uh, prototype for the microscope went to a guy named Lewenhook. Lewenhook turned it into the compound microscope, gave it to a guy that a hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, uh, named Louis Pasteur, who was using Lewenhook's microscope to discover why beer and wine went bad. By studying fermentation, he actually discovered germ theory, which is still the leading theory that runs clinical medicine in every hospital in the world. So wine technology, the press, leads to lens technology, which leads to the microscope, which gives us germ theory, which gives us medicine. Backing up. Then a guy named, um, not Lewenhook, but uh, Lippershey. Lippershey turned his lenses the other way and turned it into the Dutch spyglass. So you can imagine the pirates looking through the Dutch spyglass. Someone decides to give a Dutch spyglass to a guy named Galileo Galilei for his birthday. Galileo puts it on a, a stand tweaks it a little bit and turns it into the modern telescope, notices that Copernicus was right, that we are basically going around the sun and the sun's not going around us, gets in huge trouble with you know the Catholic Church, but basically invents cosmology by lens technology that was invented because of printing press, because the printing press was based on a wine. So wine press leads to printing press, which leads to lens technology, which leads to the Dutch spyglass, which leads to cosmology, which uh, explains all of the world we can't see in the sky. And then Lewenhook's microscope gives us a view into microscopy and everything that's invisible and too small below us. So wine has given us microscopy, cosmology, science, medicine. It's all kind of poetically connected to the wine press and the technology it took to make wine. That is incredible. Like, it's just, wow. Yeah. That is so cool. I've always loved talking to you, Wes. Thank you so much for giving me your time, my man. Did you have fun here? I had a great time. If anyone wants to uh, reach me, like I said, uh, whagan at jwilks.com. Check out uh, jwilks.com, millerfamilywines.com. And if you want to come down, we have a great tasting room in downtown Santa Barbara right off of Stern's Wharf and a great tasting room in Los Olivos for uh, uh, for the Miller Estate Wines as well. Nice. Thank you for uh, giving me a voice and thanks for putting it out on the air. Yeah, no problem, Wes. Always enjoyed your company and coming to table with you. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing this uh, Jay Wilkes cab from the Paso Highlands District. Love it, my man. And I say cheers to you. Cheers, brother. To where wine takes you. You bet. So give me that moonshine. We'll get by. We pass on around till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Much thanks to Wes Hagen, always for his time and conversation. Always enjoy chatting with Wes. All right, let's hit the crush pad now. Smack dab in the middle of harvest we are. I share a quick hang with my fave, Jordan Fiorentini, winemaker at Epic Estate Wines. And we talk Paso Harvest from her and Epic's perspective. I know you can't smell the smells of harvest in the cellar over this podcast, but you can definitely hear it. Forklifts moving around us, pumps going. The heartbeat of the cellar is strong, and I always love catching up with Jordan. Happy harvest, Jordan. Happy harvest, Adam. Okay, so normally we're walking through the epic 
tank room and we see these all year long and they look beautiful but this is the time of year we were actually doing something with them right yeah we actually use them no <laughs> we could put wine in them the rest of the year but we'd have to take it out for harvest because that's why we have these gorgeous concrete tanks so how many do we have and what are we doing with them we're filling them up and we're doing like punch downs and pump overs yeah, and so we we're filling them up. We have 17. So we have 10 from Vino Vessel and then seven from uh, Nico Velo. And they all, they each hold about like 3.8 tons, uh, give or take. And right now we're doing a pump over, which we usually do at the beginning of the fermentation and then we'll move to punch downs later. But it really just depends on the wine. So you obviously the, the, the grapes are on top. We're taking the juice that is settled to the bottom putting it back on top. Yeah, we're doing a pump over. So we want to, you know, extract from the cap, which is the grape skins that rise to the top of the tank due to the CO2 produced by the fermentation. And we want to keep extracting from those several times a day. So I love this pump. We're actually using an air pump. It's really loud, uh, but it has this sort of heartbeat to it. And um, it's pretty gentle to the wine and it just, can, can do our pump overs, which I- Why is that important, being gentle to the wine? Um, well, we just don't wanna um, heat the wine up. I mean, this isn't, this is like half wine, right? It's half juice, half wine right, right now. But we don't want to put it through too much pressure, heat it up through a pump that might get too hot. So I really love this style of pump for harvest. It takes that liquid, pours it right on the top, and then what? By the end of this pump over, first of all, how long will this take? We should probably go up, we should go up and look at the top of it, but we usually do uh, anywhere from five to 15 minute pump overs, depending on the size of the tank and the point of the fermentation. And there's a, a pump over device up top that spins around, so it touches all corners of the tank. And then where will the cap be by the end of this? Um, so when you do a punch down, you usually decrease the height of the cap until it rises back up several hours later. That does happen with a pump over, but not as dramatically. Yeah. Now I remember just across from here, we were on that tank over there. I want to say last harvest or the harvest before. And that was this like stem inclusion thing you had going on. And man, that thing, I mean, it, it felt like someone like you could probably walk on it. Yeah, it did. I would do a punch down. I think that's why I discovered you had a fear of heights, right? Yes, I definitely do. <laughs> we had you on the last tank again. That's of... why you're like, well, we can go get up there on the catwalk. And I'm just trying to think of like reasons to like not. He's totally, I was like, why is he not excited to do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, were, we had you on the last one though, where it just like falls off after. But we have the harnesses, and, um, but yeah, when it's uh, when you're about to do a punch down for the first time, it's like almost against a cement wall. So especially if it has a lot of whole cluster in it, it's really hard to get the punch down initiated. But then once you're like comfortable, I remember you were like literally on top of the tank, stepping over the hole. And yes, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable up there. And then if I have the harness on, I really kind of have no fear, which is okay. So how far through harvest are we? I'd say 60%. Really? Oh, look, I'm echoing in that tank. I know, yeah, because we're facing the tank. So um, has it, what has it been like? Has it been light, late, heavy? What's it been like for you? It's been light. It's been a little like touch and go at the beginning because you always have to remember, you know, the, la the end of summer is always warm, right? So we're always thinking, ah, oh, it's going to be ready. Let's pick, 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 pick. But then you sort of start looking at the fruit and the acids were high and the berries were really taut um, at the beginning of September and started thinking back to what happened earlier in the year. And the summer was pretty mild and the spring was cool and bud break was a little bit later. So that, you know, made us like cool our, <laughs> cool our picking down a little bit. And then the weather's kind of been up and down, but been not, nothing extreme. So it's actually been really nice that way. And then, so when it's a little bit lighter of a yield, quality obviously doesn't suffer. No, quality usually goes way up. The concentration goes up. Uh, we do have some variability within the clusters because of this really long, cool bloom to fruit set period. So we kind of, in years like that, you actually need to be patient. I'm, I'm one of the people who, you know, I feel like normally in Paso, it's hard to make the decisions to pick early, but those are usually really good decisions. But this year it was, better to be patient. So obviously Epic is a roadhouse and we're doing all the same favorites that people have known you guys for, but you're bringing on some, are you bring, you're bringing in some Bordeaux <gasps> grapes. Are we not supposed to say that yet? Oh, <laughs> it's okay, no, it's okay. I think we posted something on our social media. So it's we're fine. breaking news here. Breaking news. So we planted a few years ago, we have an extension of the Pederewski property. So have a new planting out there and we planted Syrah and Grenache and some Zinfandel, Tempranillo, but we also wanted to try our hand Finally, it's been, I think, 11 or 12 years. We uh, 
really did not want to plant Cabernet. And I couldn't look at it after I moved down here from Napa and Sonoma for many, many years. But now we're trying just a little bit of a Bordeaux program out there, but it's kind of in the epic farming way. So we're actually doing all head trained. Uh, wow. It, we've got mostly Cab and a little bit, a tiny touch of Merlot, tiny touch of Cab Franc, and a little bit of Petit Verdot. So we're going to do like a blend? Yeah, it'll be a Bordeaux blend. Oh my gosh. I mean, I hopefully. I yeah. <laughs> so is this something that you kind of a little reluctant to do or excited uh, to do now? Are you ready to do that? I'm really excited for it. It's just been... Was it kind um, of suggested upon you? No, it's something I think Bill didn't want to do. It's so funny because Justin Smith was our, you know, he consulted with Epic at the beginning before I was even here. And he had this motto that was friends don't let friends play at Cabernet <laughs> in West Paso. And so we, we totally like, I, you know, it's a difficult grape to grow out here. That's, I'll just put it there. It's, it's hard, and I've seen it like the. Because I mean, it doesn't get the heat it needs. Yeah, uh, it gets the heat it needs. I think the berries are just really small, and the and the um, the leaves are really small. So you're dealing with this like smaller plant in an area that's already really stressed out by the you know the weather and the the lack of water and the limestone soils. So I think once we get a handle on what it needs on our site, we'll be rocking and rolling. Okay, as far as weather for Harvest 2021, we talked a little bit about it a few minutes ago. Is there anything that could happen that we don't want? We really just don't want. Would that be like a big heat spike? Right or now? Right now. Honestly, even if it rained, I would be so happy. But I, we wouldn't want tons of rain and we wouldn't want tons of heat. Tons of heat right now is... It can happen, but it's pretty late. I got a little year. sprinkling in San Luis Obispo yesterday. Did you or no? No, I wish. Yeah, okay. I would take rain, a little bit of rain on the ripe fruit. I'd be fine with it, but yeah. um, knock the dust off. But yeah, I think lots of rain or lots of heat would be bad. But like I said, lots of heat right now is not a normal thing. Yes, it can be warm in the late mid-fall, I guess. I don't know yeah, where yeah. we're at. But not. it would never be too hot, I think. And what we can look at and what we have forecasted, it looks pretty... It's like, just perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's perfect ripening. And why I'm saying it can't get too... I mean, it could be hot, but the days are shorter. And usually uh, it's so dry at this time of year that the, the diurnal temperature swings are pretty crazy. You get really cool mornings. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the personnel aspect. You have the people that are close to you. You have, obviously, you're talking to Kyle all the time, your vineyard manager. You have uh, Zach, of course. You have Taylor. You also have some interns. Yes. What, what, is, what is your intern situation been like? How has that been? And, and what has just been like a, you know, a typical harvest day with the whole team here? Well, I have to give a huge shout out to the, you know, my permanent team like Kyle's out in the vineyard at 2 a.m. starting picks we're actually uh, selling you know we as we always do we sell fruit to some select winemakers and so they get to talk to Kyle a lot and sometimes me which is awesome and then Zach is like you know he, he carries it all he's the guy that keeps the place running and um, trains the interns along with Taylor uh, but we have a great group of interns that have been now trained by the master Jedi and um, <laughs> We have, oh my gosh, we have five this year and they are all different and all awesome and just really excited because this is the time of harvest where they really get in their groove and they start to understand um, up, our system and all that stuff. So Yeah, you know, um, and I was like, when I walk past to get to your office, you walk by like the communal break room for the winery and the cellar. And I was like, damn, these guys are doing pretty good. They're eating good. Oh, you guys are keeping them well so fed. So good. We get, uh, we bring in food every day. We have Megan from our tasting room who brings us our lunches that we order in every day. And uh, yeah, today we had breakfast burritos and then in and out like an hour later. <laughs> nice. So we're all like, well, the harvest, it's right. like the heart, like the freshman 15. Right. Like we're working hard, but we're also eating really well. So. Yeah. And you guys are known for some pretty cool little like gifts at the end of all this. Oh yeah. Kind of a surprise. I know. I did order them today. Oh, really? Yeah, I had a little bit of a problem because of all the ordering and shipping and stuff, but I got a really cool... We always get a really cool harvest swag item for the mm-hmm. for the team every year. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Gotta come work a harvest. Score, work a, score harvest. a cool vest one of these days. Yes. I love it. Uh, Jordan Fiorentini, she is the winemaker for Epic. It is harvest time. Well, I always love to come pay you a visit during harvest. I just love coming, hanging out with you anyways, but at harvest, I know you're so busy. Though. So to have you come up and hang out for a little bit, it really means a lot. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Adam. You brightened my day by oh. being here. Thank you to Jordan Fiorentini and, of course, Epic Estate Wines for letting me bring Georgie also into the mix. I got to post some pics, too. He got tanked. You'll have to see see what I mean.
Good times. And you could follow Epic Estate Wines on socials at Epic Wines, E-P-O-C-H Wines. They got stories and posts of everything going on. Great team, great owners, great winemakers. Just love those folks. Okay, you ready for that Travel Paso Spotlight? Lots of great feedback on our Sensorio Spotlight last episode. We're back now to accommodations, though. And if you have an RV, this is the place for you. We have our share of RV resorts on the Central Coast, but I have never seen one like this. And if you don't have an RV, not to worry. They have different sized cottages that still allow you to take advantage of all the resort amenities. And we even have companies here that will literally rent you an RV Take it where you want, set it up, leave it to you, and then when you're done, you leave, they take it away. I mean, so there are lots of ways you can enjoy Cava Robles RV Resort. It's a resort really designed by nature. It's all set up around beautiful oak trees, ton of amenities. I mean, game room, wellness center, two pools and two jacuzzis, splash pad, playground, walking trails, fire pits, bocce ball, lots of outdoor games, picnic building, and outdoor grills, multiple off-leash dog parks for your little Georgie, Wi-Fi, arts and crafts, on-site wine tasting, live entertainment on the weekends, fitness classes, water aerobics, you rent a golf cart, take it wherever you want around the resort, outdoor games, they got a concierge, group wine tours, and, you know, it's a great place for weddings, reunions, they got catering services, Cava Robles, I'm telling you, these folks got it all. Beautiful there, too. So, again, whether you got an RV or not, they got ways for you to stay and check it out. They got the cottages, studio, one bedroom, two bedroom. Learn more. You got to check these guys out. CavaRobles.com. C-A-V-A Robles.com. And let them know you heard them on the Where Wine Takes You podcast. All right. Damn, what a jam-packed show, huh? Lots going on. Thanks to Jennifer at Cava Robles, a Jordan from Epic Estate Wines, and Wes Hagen for the great chat as well. Have some great episodes coming down the pike I'm really excited about. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer is Jen Bravo. Where Wine Takes You is recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. Original music by Moonshiner Collective. If you are planning your next trip to Paso, I know Harvest Wine Weekend just around the corner. Make sure, mandatory, you gotta hit up PasoWine.com and follow Paso Wine on Insta for the latest. You can also follow me and check out Picks from the Road, our tapings of the podcast where we're recording at Adam on the Air. And next time you are cruising the Central Coast, you can tune me in on your radio. My weekday morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning, is heard on Coast 104.5 and Wine Country Radio. Cork Dorks, The Liquid Lunch, and more, The Crush 92.5. You can stream the station as well. Also look in your app store for a free app to listen from anywhere right on your smartphone. Don't forget to share the podcast. I'm so thankful you've connected with us again here. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Lift that glass up high. Cheers to, what did Wes call it? Liquid humanism. Till next time, wherever it leads, enjoy where wine takes you. And give me that passion, give all and pass on down till the job is Camp out in the trees, it will simplify good come. Give me that moonshine, give all and pass on down till the job is Camp out in the trees, it will simplify good come. Give me that moonshine, give all and pass on down till the job is out in the trees, you will simplify in good company. With that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass all around till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, you will simplify in good company.